episode 108, Cash Nickerson, chairman of ACA North America, author of the book, Negotiation as a Martial Art, Techniques to Master the Art of Human Exchange. If you fear you might be doing something stupid, and it takes some humility to even imagine, to say, but what if it's a bad mistake? I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more information about Cash Nickerson and his new book, go to markgraben.com slash mistake108. Thanks for listening, and now on with the show. And our guest today is Cash Nickerson. He's a friend of mine. He's the author of six books, including his latest. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It's titled Negotiation as a Martial Art, Techniques to Master the Art of Human Exchange. So before I tell you a little bit more about the book and a little more about Cash, thanks for being here. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, I'm really excited about the conversation. Congratulations on the bestseller status, by the way. Thank you. I read uh, The Hollywood Reporter, uh, a writer there did a review, a uh, good writer. He calls the book, quote, valid and wholly knowledgeable guide, wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, not like wholly uh, with, with an H. It's a, a valid and wholly knowledgeable guide in the, 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 it's subverting the typical potentially ignoramus-based assumptions about the art of being a good negotiator. Is that, was that the writer's line or is that your line? What's an ignoramus-based assumption? You know, I don't know, Mark. I didn't even, I don't even know who reviews this, you know. That one was sent to me. Somebody said, hey, did you see this review? Which I had not. And uh, But it's interesting. Some of the reviews, I've had two reviews out of uh, Hollywood. And I think it's because they find the book entertaining. I mean, it's and it's meant to be entertaining. You know, I think we we gain the most from, you know, knowledge that's kind of fun. And so uh, one one uh, reviewer out of Hollywood said this is basically so much better than 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 Trump's books. I can't believe anybody reads Trump's books because, you know, this isn't all about this guy and in this vanity thing. He just puts it out there. So. I, I'm kind of pleased that the Hollywood people uh, like it, even though I don't expect it to be turned into a movie anytime soon. <laughs> well, I guess it makes sense. I mean, I guess there is a lot of deal making here, maybe in the context then of um, the entertainment industry. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I also think there's a recognition um, more so maybe in the arts world that negotiation really is an art. Um, and so I think, it partially falls under that. And, and the title is, is somewhat seductive in that regard because here's negotiation as a martial art, which immediately, you know, sounds dramatic and interesting and almost fictional. Well, we'll come back and talk more about all of these elements, um, your martial arts practice, negotiating and what you've learned. Um, before, I want to read a little bit more about your background, though. Um, Cash, one quick question. I think I know the answer to this, but for the audience who might be wondering, Cash is a given name or a nickname? It is 
my middle name, my legal official birth certificate, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Stephen Cash Nickerson. And I, I wear it with pride because my mother and father moved from Florida for my dad's first job. And they got everything they owned into the trunk of their car and they needed money. And back then it wasn't as common, of course, uh, for women to work in 1959. And my mother took a job demonstrating and selling vacuum cleaners at JCPenney. Now, it would take it, it would take someone like my mother to find out that JC Penny's middle name was Cash. You know, if I was, and it makes sense that he became a retailer. If he had a name Cash Penny, what else are you going to do? Right. And so she was hoping someday I would be successful. And I'll just say proudly that my mother hasn't had to pay a bill in many, many years. <laughs> well, it's good to hear the background on uh, the name. Uh, I thought maybe it was a family name, but that's, a, that's a, a much more interesting story. And it is now. My son is Andrew Cash, and he has guaranteed that when he has a son, that'll be a middle name Cash. So it's definitely going to be uh, multi-generational now. So um, let me tell you a little bit more about Cash. Uh, again, our guest, Cash Nickerson, he does a lot of things. He is the chairman of ACA North America's business unit. He was the president's CFO, general counsel, and the second largest shareholder of a company, PDS Tech, prior to its acquisition by ACA Technologies a few years back. Um, Cash has previously held roles, including uh, being an attorney and a marketing executive for Union Pacific Railroad, an associate and then a partner at Jenner and Block in Chicago, and chairman and CEO of an internet company. He is a visiting professor at Washington University in St. Louis School of Law, where he teaches negotiation. And he has JD and MBA degrees. And I saw him on TV yesterday doing the promotional rounds uh, for the book. So um, thank you for, for coming on my little podcast after being uh, on TV sets across the country. Hopefully your favorite mistake story isn't about your TV appearances yesterday. No, fortunately, fortunately those went well, even though in four hours you do, I did 24 interviews. Yeah, that's, that's got to be, well, no, I was, I say you, you, you probably weren't talked out, but it's probably, is it tiring to, you've got lights and a little bit of pressure? It's the best way to do them is, is to actually be repetitive. And that's the hardest thing is to remember exactly what you said last time, because you don't have a teleprompter and you can't see the person with whom you're speaking because you just hear in your ear. Okay. Now you'll be talking to Randy from Indianapolis and, and say hello to Randy. Hello, Randy. And then Randy starts to ask you questions. Well, I bet one question you didn't get asked yesterday is the question we always ask guests here. You know, looking back at, at your career, all the different things that you've done, Cash, I mean, what is your favorite mistake? It's interesting. I love your question. And I think when everyone hears that question, you know, my favorite mistake or, um, you know, I, I think initially because we all, once we get to a certain stage in life, have so many mistakes we have one of two reactions. One reaction is, how will I choose? Which everyone would feel. It's like, wow. You know, another reaction is like, I hate thinking about my mistakes. I'm a very positive person. Let's just keep moving forwards. Uh, another reaction, which is where I ended up is, I actually don't have to talk about one of my mistakes for it to be my favorite mistake. And so I kind of... Um, 
I kind of have made this same mistake, but it's a more dramatic and colorful story around uh, one I witnessed and then managed to repeat. Everyone thinks, well, if you see a mistake, you'll avoid it in the future. That's just not my experience because, you know, that's why they call them mistakes. (laughs) So what happened? What did you see? Well, you know, and I talk about this in the book. And so it's kind of fun because it's about negotiations and it's about deals. And one of the premises of my book, Mark, is that deals are emotional. I don't care. People think of maybe buying a house as being emotional and a car as being emotional. But every multi-million dollar, billion dollar business deal I've been involved with is full of emotion as well. And why is that? It's very interesting. It's because something's at stake besides the substance of the deal. Something's at stake. Like if you work in a hospital um, and you're buying something, you know, that works out or doesn't work out. And that's the sort of subject of the deal. It works, doesn't work, works well. But it reflects on your career. It reflects on your job. It reflects on your reputation. And so the emotion comes in because there's consequences that flow from every every deal. So the one I'm going to talk about was a a billion-dollar-plus deal. It was many years ago. But it's a pattern that I have managed to repeat in my own life, but I try less and less to repeat it. But it generally comes when you've sort of convinced yourself that a deal must happen. And and in this case, um, I watched a very intelligent, highly educated MIT uh, engineer, MBA, Columbia, law degree, Harvard, you know, decorated educational veteran, as it were, um, make a very bad acquisition decision because he was just committed to do it. And, and we all can do that no matter how big or small the deal, we get committed to the deal and then start fighting and ignoring evidence around it. And that's, I think, a very common issue. And I've repeated it in my life. It's just an overcommitment to a deal at which point um, we, we start exhibiting certain behaviors. And what I have done to reduce the number of times I do this to myself is I've, I've really memorized those behaviors and I'm on the lookout for those behaviors from myself and from the people around me when we're all involved in a deal. That's interesting the way you frame that of uh, at least minimizing, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem. It's a, a behavior. It's hard to completely eliminate even with focus. Yes. Yeah. What, what because, do you think that is? Because, you know, and it's important survival skill that we make a decision. You know, if we stood thinking in the savanna, do I run or do I stay as a, <laughs> as a threat came at us, you know, we, we don't make it to the next generation. And so decision-making is extremely important. And knowing when you have enough to say, I'm making the decision, and when to sort of keep it open for alternatives, you know, this, this is not a perfect science. This is a little bit of an art, and it's a little bit of training of our own instincts. But there are behaviors that if you see them that ought to cause you to say, am I overly committed? And it, it could be a group. And when it's a group, people call it groupthink, where, you know, everybody's like, we're, we're, 
reaching consensus becomes like more important than the decision itself. But I have definitely got some warning signs to share with your audience about, hey, if you start to see these kinds of behaviors, it should make your antenna wiggle and step back and say, are we overly committed, too committed? Are we emotionally charged or what? Yeah. So um, before, it would be great to hear those um, things to look out for. Um, in, in the scenario you were thinking of, um, and, and I realize you might not, you probably shouldn't name names or there's there's you know confidentiality involved, but at least in generalities with the deal, saying it was a bad acquisition decision, like just speaking generally, like how, how and when was that clearly a bad outcome uh, after after acquisition. And, and um, I can share it in general terms. It's many, many years ago. I talk about it in the book. So um, imagine this, that, you know, we were a big public company and we wanted to buy another public company. Um, and I don't I don't mind talking about it being um, both companies were in transportation mm-hmm. and it was an interesting deal because it made sense, but not at the price that we ended up paying. Mm-hmm. And, and the story is basically the highly educated uh, gentleman um, was negotiating with a rough and tumble entrepreneur who started a trucking company with his brother, like hauling eggs from for farmers to market. OK, mm-hmm. and so he, he he talk about street smarts, you know. This guy, so it was Street Smarts versus Harvard, right? And what happened was, you know, let's let's say the company was worth a billion dollars. The deal was over a billion, but say it was worth a billion for hypothetical sake, and say the first bid was four hundred million, based on kind of where the stock was trading, and you know, a slight premium to market four hundred million dollars. And you could justify that price based on projections. You know, when you do deals, you do lots of different projections and you got a high, a low, a medium. You've had accountants look at the quality of earnings, what's really sustainable. And so you end up with, okay, we came up with a fair price over market, $400 million. And these are private conversations at this point. So the market didn't react. Otherwise, you're really in trouble. And so um, the guy came back and just simply said, my company's not for sale which is a very good thing to say when you're someone's trying to buy you. It's not for sale. It's good negotiating tactic there. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, after he said that in, you know, and he wouldn't even counter. And, and so we kind of went to the top end of the projections and, and now let's say we were at $600 million and he just said, my company's not for sale. Okay. Um, 600 million was really a high value for the company. You know, that would have been a huge premium to the market. Um, it, everything would have to go perfectly in order for that price to work. You know, let's say that was 20 times earnings, you know, so you'd have to have 20 years of current earnings. Uh, and then finally, I'll just tell you that um, we ended up paying like a billion two for the company. Okay. Um, and the guy who sold it said when he was speaking at the Harvard club or somewhere himself is street smart, no college education said he, it came to him in a dream. The number did. And number 1.2 billion came to him in a dream and the deal got done at 1.2 billion. It was a horrible deal. 
And I think we ended up selling it a 50% loss eventually, which, you know, 600 million year here, 600 million there, it adds up. So that's, that, that's my favorite mistake because um, not just because it's so egregious, but because the same elements of getting a deal wrong that went wrong there are in every deal, large or small. When we get overcommitted, that deal just had to happen. That that um, maven, I call him in the book, that deal maven was determined that that deal had to happen. And, and that's where we ended up. So, yeah, I mean, I'm. I, I am rarely in a position to negotiate, but you know, you think of the idea of at least a little bit of education I've had is the the alternative of uh, walking away. And I mean, I'm thinking of Kenny Rogers. You got you got to know when to walk away, know when to run. That seems to apply. Absolutely. If you have, we we joke those of us who have sold businesses, and I've sold a few. If you have one buyer, you have no buyer. Right. I mean, you need choices. Choices lead to better outcomes. That's the way I that's my phrase. More choices equals better outcomes. And so no choices there. There should have been alternatives. There should have been the alternative walkway. But it's interesting. In this case, the situation was one where uh, the economics of the Western U.S. really favored railroads and the economics and geography of the East really favored trucking. Because in the West, you have long distances and it's flat. And in the East, you have, you know, lots of terrain and mountains and curves. And and so the idea was that instead of a transcontinental railroad, we would be best off with a railroad in the West and a trucking company in the East and the ability to hand off between them. And that was the theory. And Arthur D. Little and all the consultants years ago had done a great study saying, yes. And so once once we were attached to that outcome, you know, that's basically what happened. So I do you want I'm trying to think what to ask you next or I'll ask you, do you want to I can hold we can hold the thought maybe on the things to look out for, because I think the martial arts aspect of your story is is a fascinating one. Can, can we get into the martial arts sure. practice first? So yeah, sure. you know, I was going to ask you, you know, how and well, you know, how how and when did you take interest in the martial arts? Was it something that you were just doing, let's say, for physical activity, or did you expect you might get some philosophical or uh, you know mental um, epiphanies from it? What, what was your intent? Really? Really great question. I actually like how you asked that because martial arts has an internal and an external side to it. And most people, depending on the higher educated people are, the more they tend to think about the internal arts. Um, whereas, um, you know, I, I, I'm not discriminated against how educated someone is. It just segments that way. Whereas, you know, if you are um, uh, don't have graduate degrees and such or uh, you, you think of martial arts as MMA and UFC. So, um, and, it, and it's, uh, it's interesting that you, that you asked it that way. I started out in high school with karate in upstate New York. Um, and I think I did that because I always grew up in fighting neighborhoods. I, you know, I was born on the south side of Philly, you know, uh, upstate New York. I mean, uh, and, and where I was, and then I grew up in Pittsburgh quite a bit. And, 
I just saw a movie out of the furnace at the suggestion of somebody. And, you know, all those kids do was fight. And that's what we did. We were near North Braddock and Forest Hills. And it, I was just in fighting neighborhoods. And I thought, you know, I could use a little edge. You know, you just it was just tough blue collar neighborhoods that I grew up in. You had a fight. And so uh, I started in high school and I did it in college. And then, you know, I jumped and then in law school and business school, I was so busy, I kind of lost that side of it. And um, and then, you know, when you're doing a career like everyone else, you get out of balance very quickly. You dive in and all you can see is that need to climb and succeed. And so I lost balance. But then um, and this is interesting. I was on a plane in 9-11 and um, we aborted takeoff. I happened to be, I was living in San Francisco and I was taking off from Dallas to head back West and we aborted takeoff and spent four hours on that plane. And I, and I thought after that experience, I thought, you know what, I want to be someone who could thwart an attempt because I fly a lot, you know? And so I got heavily back into it after nine 11, um, and then and by 2005, had um, gotten my uh, first degree black belt uh, in, in karate. I relocated to Dallas and um, second degree in 2007, third degree in 2010. Took up Brazilian jiu-jitsu in 2007. I'm a brown belt. I've been doing that for 10 years. Um, black belt's next for me. Took up Aido. And what was fun for me then was karate didn't take me internally, but with a philosophy, double major in philosophy and English, you know, especially the philosophy side, I really started getting into the internal side when I took up um, uh, Aido and then the Russian martial art of Sistema. So Aido is the samurai martial art. And that's when I really got into the internal, the real, the meditation um, and the focus and the concentration and all that happened about the same time I started writing books. So I've got to take a quick detour though, just to come back to, um, my gosh, I have a nine 11, just you know, 20 years ago now. So mm-hmm. you, your flight was about to take off. And is that when they said, clear the airspace, no more flights? Yeah, we aborted takeoff. So I was at, let's say nine ten or something like that. Maybe it was, uh, uh, eight, 10 here, whatever, but it was enough that we started to take off and then came down. Um, so we aborted takeoff, literally. Did you know when you boarded the plane, what had happened at that point already in New York? No, nobody knew anything. We were going to take off. Wow. And then, um, and I was in seat four B in case you wondered, do I remember it? Yes. Vividly. Yeah. Um, and we didn't know for the first hour or two, what was going on? They said there was a mechanical issue. They basically, I don't know if that's what they were told or if they lied to us, but it could have been a mechanical issue on that day. Yeah. About two hours into it, they said due to terrorist activities out in the Eastern U S we won't be taking off. And we spent four hours on the plane because once they ordered that ground stop, which I think there were 4,000 planes in U S skies, there aren't 4,000 gates. You think you wait for a gate now? So we we waited and waited for a gate. So that that had an impression on me. I felt like, you know what? And that was before I knew about, I think it was United 93 or whatever that, that crashed in Shanksville, where those really, really brave fellow Americans 
decided to just take it on. Really unbelievable. I wanted to be that guy. So as you mentioned, you know, with getting into writing books, we'll, we'll bring it back to, uh, it's hard to transition away from uh, thinking of that day, but um, what you learned from your, your new, your re refound practice of martial arts and new martial arts beyond your original uh, karate. Like how, how did you start connecting the dots? And you've, you've, your previous book listening is a martial art, correct? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So how did you start weaving practices and what you've learned from martial arts into your writing and your, your business pursuits? It was really, you know, this, this Russian martial arts system is very internal. Uh, Jiu-jitsu is internal. Um, Aido is internal. By internal, I mean uh, you, there are elements of, you can't really do the external well without the internal. So I, I don't remember whether I noticed it first with jujitsu or with Sistema, but I remember it vividly with jujitsu when I would work with somebody who was a world champion and I only trained with world champions. I had the luxury of doing that. Um, I, I would try to do something to them and they would disappear. And it was just, fascinated me. And I talked to him a little bit. It's like, what, what's going on there? Well, they were studying me so intently. They knew what I was going to do before I did it and would move. So I never had any structure to work with against them. And, and the Russian did the same way, but it was more stand-up art. They would just disappear and you couldn't exert any force against them. So they were, they were studying you so intently. And, and that's when I got into the listening. I I viewed them as listening in a way that was so far beyond what we do in our business lives. And that's what, that's why listening was the first one. We did training in the dark up in the woods in the Algonquin forest. So we, every other year had a camp up there for a week. Okay. And we would work in the dark in the water, whatever with, you know, former uh, Russian special forces dudes, you know, and we would do things where someone would walk towards you with a uh, knife, okay? And they would form an intention of whether they were going to harm you or not harm you 30 feet away from you and then walk towards you. And you had to, it was a training knife, but it, but they were, they would hurt. And you had to discern whether they intended you harm or not. So that when they got to you, you either had to be prepared to block or be prepared to shake their hand. And we trained that over and over and again. And I will tell you that the level of focus, concentration, and listening made made you able to pretty much get to the point where you could discern. And it wasn't like they were like putting on an angry face or a happy face. They were just coming to you. And so I was so blown away that I could be trained on intention that I thought, you know, if I can really learn this intention, think about how it would help me in face-to-face business. So, so what I hear you saying is, you know, the effective martial arts is not just reactive, a kick and then a punch and then a kick. There's, there's this, this uh, if you will, sizing up. Yes. Of your opponent. And, and how, how does that translate then into um, the practice of negotiating? Yeah. So 
if you study the person with whom you're dealing, okay, um, and I suppose somewhat the same thing happens in poker, reading tells and reading, uh, you you can know if they're listening to you, not listening to you, what they're thinking next, um, where they're headed, even before they're headed there by, you know, what they look down at. So it's incredible advancement of your observational skills that helps you have an edge in dealing with another human being, that intense engagement. Um, Where in martial arts, the consequences are, if you don't study it well enough, you get hit. So that really gets your attention. But in a business setting, even in a Zoom setting, your ability to essentially feel someone else can, can give you a great edge on what they're what cards they're holding, what they're hiding, what they're thinking, are they bluffing? Now, is, is that process of observation, which I imagine includes body language, listening, not just to the words, but inflection. And like that, that all seems based off of our physical senses. This is what you're describing is different than intuition or does intuition enter into it at some point, do you think? That's an excellent question. I think intuition always plays a role mm-hmm. um, because we see, you know, millions of bits of data and decide what we react to. You know, it's really quite amazing. If we really were conscious of everything that we're taking in from our senses, our our heads would blow up, would explode. And so a variety of things filters what we see. And so those filters can work against us, right? Because, you know, I might have trained my filters that you nodding is background noise, but really you nodding is extremely important, right? Me being aware of when you nod, when you don't nod. And so you need to remove some filters in order to gain these higher observational skills. Um, So again, our guest is um, Cash Nickerson. His most recent book is Negotiation as a Martial Art. Um, I I wanna make sure we come back and close the loop on, um, you you had mentioned the things to look out for, and and this was specifically things to look out for if your deal is a bad one, is that right? I would say these are things to look for if you're concerned about whether you've made a rash decision, you're overcommitted to a decision. You know, I think it's, it's really bad. I'm reading a pretty good book um, that talks about, it says, take your three worst decisions in business and add up what you'd be worth if you hadn't made those decisions. And it's a really high number. And, and it's basically like being smart and doing brilliant things isn't as important as not doing dumb things. Mm-hmm. And so if you fear you might be doing something stupid and it takes some humility to even imagine to say, but what if it's a bad mistake? So I, I view this as anytime you're concerned, actually I would take any major deal decision whether you're just buying a, even buying a copier and run it by, say, do any of these behaviors, are any of them present? And then this, this might give you a hint to take another look, a second look, a third look. 
So before we get into them, these are, yeah. So these, this is a broader framework for, am I making a mistake? It's right. Okay. Am, am I going to pay a dumb tax? <laughs> is it going to be a dumb tax due on this? Yeah. Deal. So, so what are those behaviors to look out for? Cash? Um, some of the warning signs are any exaggerated terms. So Anytime you hear, like if someone who works for you, if you're in a leadership position, comes to you, this is the best deal ever. This is the greatest thing on earth. This is, you know, exaggerated terms should make your antenna quiver. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's true, but why do they have to say it? Mm-hmm. I'd just be happy if somebody said, I think this is a good transaction because of this and that. I think we should go with supplier A because of this. I think we should hire person B because of this. Whenever somebody says, we'll never see anyone like this again, then I think, uh-oh. And that could apply to hiring or other decisions. Hiring, any, all these are just really, really decisions. Because if you're in any kind of serious business role, the most important thing you do and the thing you do every day and the thing you do so naturally, you don't even realize you're doing it, is make decisions. You sign things, you make decisions. Someone comes to you, say A or B, you say A. Okay. You know, and maybe you get a good presentation, maybe you don't. But I, that's what executives do, make decisions. So I always beware um, exaggerated terms. Um, another one to, to watch out for, number two on my list, is, is sort of arguing or defensiveness. As soon as you say, but what about this? They get all they, a level of excitability. Or argument. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you find is that, you know, smart people are good at arguing. Mm-hmm. And so they can be very persuasive. And so, you know, somebody, a highly educated person, and you say, well, I think we're going to go with A. And they say, well, here's why B is better. And I, I don't think you see it. And boom, 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 boom. You know, it's like maybe they're right, but at least I just wondered why so defensive? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Let's talk about it. But the overreaction, heated, argumentative state, and we are, and then you're, and then it's just sort of game on, battle on, right? Um, so that's that's a, a second one. A third one, and I saw this in this deal, is in making distinctions. You know, it's like um, my. I believe it or not, when I went to Carleton College undergraduate, I had a professor of philosophy named Perry Mason. And and Perry Mason said, you know, when you're losing an argument, you need to do one of two things. You either need to change the subject or make a distinction. And changing the subject. What's an example of that? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So making a distinction. So. In the case of this trucking acquisition, what happened was we had numbers that said, here's what the less than truckload market is expected to grow at for the next 10 years. Here's the growth rate. And let's say it was 7%. Good growth rate. Excellent growth rate. So the less than truckload market. So, you know, package market back then would grow at 7%. Well, if you ran that 7% out, the best number you could get to is a value of $600 million. So what the numbers guys went back and did was say, oh, you know what? 
there's we can segment that less than truckload market into a fast less than truckload market and a slow less than truckload market. And the fast less than truckload market, so quicker delivery times, is actually growing at 14%. Uh, yeah. So made that distinction. Let's not just look at less than truckload. Look, we can slow, you know, slow and fast. So so this is almost like a overly analytic state that is going to, because what's someone doing, they're trying to get to a result instead of an honest, intellectual, intelligent appraisal of options. Yeah. It sounded like uh, massaging the numbers to prove the point you wanted to make, as opposed to doing a good rational process of, well, we might decide to buy, we might decide to walk away. Exactly. Exactly. That might be someone like looking at buying a house and, you know, you look at the the growth rate of you know what what appreciation could there be on the house and if you look at it over a long period of time it's a 4% growth rate but you know last year it was 20% so you project the 20% forward because you know it's like i have a lot of friends who've been doing that lately <laughs> from 20 to 21 yeah yeah, yeah. gosh um Another one of my fun seven is anytime people use the word strategic. Mm-hmm. Strategic is a euphemism for, eh, let's throw the numbers out the window. No, no, no. This is a strategic acquisition. I, I've taught courses before in acquisitions where I've said, beware the strategic acquisition because it means the numbers don't add up. I learned that early in my career, even in the context of, let's say, strategic projects that somebody like me as an engineer at the time, like I'd have to make this business case and you get to a certain point of the organization and an executive could just say, go do it. It's strategic. I, I heard the same thing, even at that level of work. You know, the word strategic is kind of fun because whenever um, somebody was like, they didn't know what else to do with an executive in a, in a major corporation, They'd give them some little strategic title, you know, and and that's when you knew they were done. They're assigned to strategic projects. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you knew they were done. (laughs) Um, Here's a good one, and I kind of alluded to this in distinctions, but constant changes in assumptions. Mm -hmm. You know, when you sit down and make a decision, you sit down and commit. Here's assumptions that we're basing this decision on, and those should be like bricks that hold your bridge up. And then someone comes back and says, you know, maybe we were wrong about this brick. Maybe we don't need this brick. Mm-hmm. Well, you take that brick out, the bridge falls down. But but if you take that brick out, I can get across, I can make, I can make this thing happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good so constant changes or changes in fundamental assumptions. Mm-hmm. This is very dangerous. Yeah. The use of power. Use of power. This is like, look, you know, how long you had <laughs> one guy say to me one time when I was questioning a decision. How long you been out of law school? <laughs> you know, I've been doing this. I have this, da-da, you know, this, this power. I'm the executive vice president. I'm the vice president. You know, I'm accountable. I'm the one. And like that makes it smarter or better. I'm accountable. Well, now I feel better. You know, good to know. <laughs> What's that do for me? What's that worth? Can I take that to the bank? I'm accountable. I always love that when people say, no problem. I'm accountable. It's like, oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> that's going to be quite helpful. 
<laughs> in I, bankruptcy. I that, that word gets used a lot in different settings, like where I work in healthcare. Holding people accountable is a polite way of saying we're going to blame them for things that maybe weren't their fault. But the, the, I looked up the word accountable in the dictionary once. It basically just it means to give account, to explain what happened. That's different than responsibility or ensuring success somehow. It's it's just something accountable. Any use of any kind of power term or I'm accountable and it's up to me. And, you know, it's, um, you know, maybe you ought to, you, maybe your antenna should quiver a little bit and take another look. Uh, and, and my last one's kind of a favorite because I spent time in the Silicon Valley. I spent time in the, in the dot-com era and, um, you know, what people would say out there and they still sometimes say it. You don't hear it as much in other parts of the country, but is it whether you get it or not? You don't get it. Oh no, he doesn't get it. And so early on in the uh, tech bubble, it was like Mark doesn't get it. Oh, or Mark, yeah, he gets it. When people would talk about revenue doesn't matter, it's eyeballs, <laughs> right? You know, which there was some truth to. I mean, early on, especially, it was like anybody who worried about revenue. You had, there was no hope for you in the Valley. <laughs> Revenue? Uh, we'll acquire users and then we'll figure out the business model, I guess. It was all about eyeballs. Mm -hmm. You know, how many eyeballs do you have? I mean, so, saying somebody doesn't get it, that's that's just dismissive without having a good basis. And then maybe that comes back to what you warned earlier about group think. Somebody who's not going along with the group think will get labeled. Well, they don't get it. Even if they're the one who is got the, the the right assessment of the situation and or they're the one willing, brave, or stupid enough to speak up about it. It's my favorite fable, the emperor has no clothes, which is the most vivid observation of groupthink. Nobody and that that fable, believe it or not, exists in many, many cultures. I researched it one time and it was it was uh, often about legitimacy, believe it or not. So really really amazing all over the world, that fable existed in cultures. So this shows how deeply rooted these behaviors are. Yeah. Well, Cash, I want to ask you um, one other thing. And again, I want to remind um, the audience, um, Cash Nickerson, the book, the full title is Negotiation as a Martial Art, Techniques to Master the Art of Human Exchange. So you can learn more. Cash's website is Cash Nickerson. Com. But I, I've got to ask you, it's a follow-up to something we chatted about um, the other day before we recorded here. A book you said you might write, the title you gave me was Mistakes You Might Have Missed. So I want to see if you could tell the audience why, 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 you, why you might do that. You know, I've had a wonderful uh, career so far of, you know, doing many things all over the world and many different types of things. Most Many people are smart and just do one thing, something they're really good at. I have turned ADD into a life, uh, into, into a financial success. Uh, and, and so I, I think I've seen mistakes and done mistakes from so many different angles in so many different contexts. I think it'd be kind of fun to, you know, share what it's like to um, uh, just see different facets uh, that maybe maybe people haven't seen mistakes you might have missed, and with a hope that 
maybe it reduces, you know, some of the kind of mistakes uh, that I've made that that might help other people. And and there, there, there's so many and so many interesting things. I've just been so lucky that to meet so many different people. But I, I had I had one person tell me that God told me to. God told them to buy my company. And I said, God told me to sell it to you. And it <laughs> that was my quick retort. And it turned out to be a horrible deal because, you know, when you do a deal, you, you, sometimes you're, you're, you're with the people for a long time. And it's like, you know, I kind of, I just have lots of them. And, and, and I think um, we, we, we can almost have a mistakes club. You could have a nice club where we just got together, you know, periodically uh, and, and shared like, I'd like to call it lessons learned mistakes. It's kind of the ne- negative side. And, and I think it's, it's hard to plow forward, be optimistic. There's so much more money to be made in the future that I tend not to, I, I tend to like figure out what went wrong and then never re-guess the trade again. So it's like, I'm done. Okay. Let's not do that again. Here's the seven, here's the seven things to look out for next time. And if I hear any of these things, I'm going to say, wait a minute, because I did repeat, you know, these on at least two other deals that I did. And I thought, man, I just did what I swore I would never do. So I I, I hear what you're saying. You know, I think there's a a balance to be found and we want to recognize mistakes. We want to reflect on it, but not to dwell on it. Maybe there's there's a point where, you know, know, because, you know, the, the, the tone and the theme of this podcast is not beating ourselves up or beating up the guest for why. Why'd you do that? Um, but there, there's probably a point of saying, okay, I've learned from it. I've analyzed it. I try to, I know what I will try to do differently in the future where to your point, if people miss the mistake, if they don't realize it's a mistake or they quickly just brush it aside, like they're in denial, then they're doomed to, to repeating it. Right. I will tell you, I won't, you'll be thrilled to know this probably because it really endorses your, your search here and your podcast. I won't deal with anyone who says they never had a failure. I just won't. Because either they've never reached far enough or they're lying to me. And often it's the latter. So why would I want to do business with somebody that told me they never made a mistake? Anybody, you know, um, I know it's not a political show, but if uh, somebody says to you, well, everything I do, I'm a winner and I always win. I know that I can't trust them right out of the gate. I know it. And that's a problem. Um, I was thinking about a deal that I did and I, all these things were present and yet I did it anyway. And in that case, when this is what I learned from that one, I had private equity investors in a deal and they were pushing me say, listen, we need this return on our numbers. So you got to do deals. And I did a deal I shouldn't have done because I had outside people pressuring me, but I still did it. And so my lesson learned from that was, you know, just because someone pushes you into it is not an excuse. You, you, you have to make the decision. Say no. If they don't like it, I think that can be hard sometimes because we speak as if we have the power to decide and control things. Oftentimes, there's other players involved and there's pressures. And it could be a pressure of, oh, no, if I don't do this, I'm out of business. That's a common pressure. It could be a pressure. My investors are demanding a 20% return. If I don't do this deal, they won't get it. And so I think in fairness to ourselves, when we make mistakes, I tell people this, successes are team efforts and so are failures, right? <laughs> it's a team effort. 
And so maybe the best we can do is try and create a culture where we hold each other accountable to help reduce the number of times we make a collective bad decision because we all just see like we got to do it. Well, Cash, if you end up writing that book, maybe we, we, we can talk again here on the podcast. Maybe this podcast can become the official podcast that your club members listen to. But I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And, you know, one thing I've been trying to do with the podcast is, um, you know, you know, in a way, normalizing, uh, being open about mistakes. I appreciate that you and all my other guests have been willing to come on and, and share something that. Um, you know, uh, on some level, you know, people always like to tell the stories that paint themselves in the best light. But to me, the the fact that people are willing to admit these things and grow and help others, I, to me, that that right there, that's a really positive light. Too. It, it's um, it's very healthy. One thing I do, and I make my students do it in class. I always do a preview and review of every significant meeting, a negotiation, a deal. You know, what I think would happen, what did happen, lessons learned. It's so, if you can't learn, then, you know, that's that's a problem. But I will tell you, when you, I lost several million dollars when I repeated this mistake, all the same behaviors, and but I was pressured into it. And I can't, I can't have that excuse. I was pressured into it. Now, when I feel myself pushed in a direction that I know isn't good, I just stop and say, I can't go that direction. I'm going to tell you why. And here's the seven things. And I can see five of them right now surfacing. You're pushing me. You're arguing with me. You're trying to convince me this is strategically important, you know. And so here's my seven. You've hit five. So I I can't do it. One other thing that I've been thinking about lately is, and this is great to help reduce the number of mistakes we make is I'm trying to get better at saying no. I'm trying to get better at saying no. You, you meet some people and all they do is say no. But for those of us that are positive and want to and sell and want to get things done, no is hard. But no is the key to making fewer mistakes and not having to pay that dumb tax. <laughs> well, that's great advice, Cash. A lot of uh, great advice that you shared with us here in the episode again. Um, Today, So again, uh, the book is Negotiation as a Martial Art, Techniques to Master the Art of Human Exchange. Cash Nickerson has been our guest. Cash, uh, I'm glad you didn't start the practice of saying no when I asked you to do the podcast. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for saying yes. Well, you didn't exhibit any of the seven behaviors. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> what a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Likewise. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Cash. Again, for show notes, links, and more information about Cash and his book, go to markgraben.com slash mistake 108. If you like the episode, please share it with a friend or a colleague, share it on social media. That would really help get the word out about the podcast and our great guests. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.